0: Hi there, Diana here. As I prepare for the upcoming season of the podcast, I'm sharing some of the episodes that I love, and today is part two of the Lennon-Cleave episode, which actually may be my favorite of the Cleave series episodes. Maybe. I have another contender. Let me know if you agree or have a different favorite. These interviews with Cleave are so jam-packed, full of insightful information, that I think it's really useful to revisit them. At least for me, in re-listening to them, I'm always reminded of the many important comments and observations made by Cleve. I also think it's so incredibly helpful to return to what the Beatles said contemporaneously. There are so many sweeping generalizations about the Beatles based on what they said after the breakup, and so much of it is not true For example, it's often said that by 66, they were growing as individuals and growing apart. And while they may have been individuating as much as one can individuate when you live down the street from your bandmates and best friends, they do not seem to be growing apart. Now, I know this is before the Hellish 66 tour, which was made particularly difficult due to a comment that John made in this interview. But still, Cleve's observation stands even after that tour because Hunter Davies remarks upon it after he interviews them in 67 and 68. So it's useful to go back to what they said and what people around them said at that time. Lennon, in this interview, is, as always, a character, and I get the sense that he was performing for Maureen, which makes this profile hugely entertaining. So let's dive back into this episode If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a great review or rating, or give us a shout out in social so that other people can find us. Or consider joining the podcast Patreon group, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash onesweetdream. I'd love to see you there and appreciate all support. Okay, well, I think that's it. On with the show.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Welcome to One Sweet Dream. I am your host, Diana Erickson, and I am again joined by Duncan Driver. This is part two of the Cleve series profile on John Lennon. In part one of this episode, we discussed the first part of Maureen's article on John Lennon. In it, she establishes the permanence of the Beatles' fame, power, and status in the world. She also introduces us to the groovy bubble of the Weybridge-Esher Beatles community, highlighting the closeness of the Beatles and reinforcing that they are better friends than ever before. She astutely describes Lennon, comparing him to Henry Eighth, highlighting his regal and mercurial nature that is at once childish, vague, tough, and indolent, but also quick-witted, easy going, enthusiastic, and charming. She takes us on a tour of Lennon's house, pausing to observe Lennon's past and current obsessions, his toys and acquisitions, which include a suit of armor, crutches across, boxes that continually blink, and a gorilla suit. They then speed through Lennon's house with the tiny Julian and his porcelain cat trailing behind while John opines on different subjects, including religion. Where we left him was talking about his acquisitions, and where we pick up is Maureen's account of John's shopping sprees. And so, I think that's all the setup we need. Let's jump straight back into our exploration of Maureen Cleve's profile on John Lennon.
2: He shops in lightning swoops on Asprey's these days, and there is some fine wine in his cellar, but he is still quite unselfconscious. He is far too lazy to keep up appearances, even if he had worked out what the appearances should be, which he is not.
1: Um,
0: I like
2: how dryly funny she can be in these articles.
0: She's very funny, and clearly she finds them very amusing, which they are. You know, they're such characters. Yeah. And she sees them through this affectionate lens, which makes the profile so, so lovely and enjoyable. Mm. And, you know, I love this observation that John is unselfconscious and unaware of appearances because to some extent it rings true. But on the other hand, having studied John for a long time, I also think that it is one of the trickiest, most complex statements that she makes in this whole piece because you know, John's always operating at two levels, and I think he doesn't always reveal how much he's taking in. Yeah. I think he does have a sense of appearances. Maybe maybe it's more that he just isn't beholden to them. Mm. I can see what she means. John is such a force of nature and such a character, and he's so self-involved and arrogant that I think he does come off as unself conscious. Like, why would he compare himself to other people he doesn't respect? You know, yeah. uh, And I think that John is relatively unconcerned with most people. He's competitive with the Beatles and with Dylan and maybe occasionally the Stones. But I don't think he sees most people at his level. But we do have a ton of evidence to suggest he is highly aware of power dynamics. Yeah. This reinforces this idea of John being so self-centered, like he's interested in himself rather than other people, whereas Paul is very aware of the world around him, of what's done and what isn't done. And John would kind of like to, but he loses interest because he's so in his own little bubble. Paul will probably learn from the Asher's how lunch is done, but I get the <laughs> sense that he would have figured it out even if he wasn't with the Asher's, whereas John, he hasn't quite figured it out. Yeah. But this idea, he's far too lazy to keep up appearances even if he had worked out what the appearances should be, which he is not. Now, I get that John is fronting a little bit with her. This is kind of John's sexiness. I think he plays it not trying too hard. Like, this This, to me, reads a little bit like this because I also know how obsessed with fashion John is. I don't quite buy into the fact that he doesn't like to keep up with appearances, but one gets a sense that he isn't trying to impress or keep up with other people, but he does like to keep on top of things.
2: Yeah, I know what you mean about him not necessarily being fully revealing for someone as, as revealing as John can be. You know that story that Allen Ginsberg tells, and it's around about this time yeah. where John goes into a, a hotel room with Bob Dylan is there and Allen Ginsberg is yeah. there, and there's a kind of awkward pause in conversation, and Allen fills it by asking John, have you ever read William Blake? Um, and John instantly replies, never heard of him. And Cynthia cuts him off and says, John, stop lying. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's that thing of of wanting to put out a slightly guarded but also slightly provocative position to see how people react to it, even if it isn't fully revealing of himself.
0: Well, also, remember, this is around the time when they're doing the Pennebaker film. that exact time, yeah. And and he talks about it in his Lennon Remembers interview about how he's on Dylan's turf and how, how worried he is. You know, he's so insecure about it. John has mastered the art of seeming very open while being very, very elusive. And remember, May Pang talks about that, and it's almost disconcerting his ability to seem very open and vulnerable, and yet not at all who he is. And so we've got to remember that. I mean, John's a genius. You know, John is a genius. I do think that John is unselfconscious in a way because he's so self-centered. But on the other hand, to think that John isn't fully aware of the impression that he's giving is a mistake. Yeah.
2: He is very keen on books, will always ask what is good to read. He buys quantities of books, and these are kept tidily in a special room. He has Swift, Tennyson, Huxley, Orwell, costly leather-bound editions of Tolstoy, Oscar Wilde. Then there's Little Women, all the William books from his childhood, and some unexpected volumes, such as 41 Years in India by Field Marshal Lord Roberts, and Curiosities of Natural History by Francis T. Buckland. This last, with its chapter headings, earless cats, wooden-legged people, the immortal Harvey's mother is right up his street. That's what I mean when I say you are kind of obsessed with what you might call (laughs) ugly people.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, before I read her last point about it being right up his street, I was like, what are you talking about? This is exactly the kind of things that John Lennon would love.
2: Yeah, I, I suppose you would think if, if John Lennon is a sort of countercultural '60s icon and uh, damning of Christianity, that it would be weird for his uh, library to include a lot of fusty old volumes of um, British imperialism, but it does. It's like Paul says; he's the only person he ever met who'd read all of Winston Churchill's works, which is, it's in, in a way, it's a slightly odd thing for John to read, given how how much of a of an icon of the previous generation Churchill was
0: well you know he does have the middle name Winston so Mm. he had to check him out
2: he has to identify with somebody
0: Right. But then again, John was more than a countercultural 60s icon. In truth, John was an eccentric artist with, with a broad range of interest, as we see here. And what I found interesting about this passage, actually, is as opposed to the rest of the house that seems out of control, all of a sudden, this gets calm here. Hmm. This paragraph is calm, you know, it's it's his books are kept tidy. tidily
2: in a special room.
0: It's yes. like
2: the the, uh, the 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 part of him that rem- the, the Mendips bedroom bit of him that persists at Weybridge is that special
0: room. Yeah, it kind of seems like this is his oasis, or this is where he escapes to. It seems like this is where he is at ease. This is where he can relax. And one gets the sense that he really is reading these books. Mm. You know, he has these leather bound um, editions of Tolstoy and Oscar Wilde because he loves these books, you know? Mm.
2: Yeah, I do. The way John will sometimes drop a quote from one of these figures into an interview. And the way he does it, he, he generally chooses quite an obscure quote and gets it word perfect. Mm. And that, to me, suggests someone who's actually read these books.
0: Right, and spent time, like, thought about them, you know. Mm.
2: Yeah, I always like that example. Um, when he's talking about wanting to stay in America, he quotes Churchill saying, uh, it's an Englishman's inalienable right to live wherever the hell he likes. That seems to be representative of how John thinks of himself. But it's also, it's, it's, it's not a common Churchill quote. It's, it's an obscure one.
0: Well, we see even in Get Back, you know, his ability to string together the lyrics to communicate, like what they're doing when they're in that circle, on the day that John has done heroin. But mm-hmm. he does it throughout the film. He strings together lyrics. It's just like John's mind is like a metal trap, you know, in terms hmm. of just his ability with words and lyrics and lines from books to recall them and put them together in the appropriate manner. It's its its part of his genius, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Shall we read about Baudetia? Sure. Baudetia? I'm not even really sure how to pronounce I this. Yeah, let's say Baudetia. I think that's correct. Okay. He approaches reading with a lively interest untempered by too much formal education. I've read millions of books, he said. That's why I seem to know things. He is obsessed by Celts. I've decided I am a Celt, he said. I'm on Bodicea's side. All those bloody blue-eyed blondes chopping people up. I have an awful feeling wishing I was there. Not there with scabs and sores, but there through reading about it. The books don't give you more than a paragraph about how they lived. I have to imagine it. (laughs) This is what I mean when I say his reality has this surreal psychedelic quality. He can read about, I don't know, um, Celtish battles happening 1,500 years ago, and his imagination recreates it in this surreal, vivid way.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. It just reflects how, how imaginative and curious John is. It, it, you know, what I thought was interesting was that John reads and is so curious about the world through his books Whereas Paul is so interested in people and learning about the world, John likes to be fairly contained. Like that's mm. how he likes to sort of experience the world is through mm. his mind and reading and imagination. Yeah. They're both curious in their own way. They are. I, I wonder if John would have uh, appreciated shows like Vikings and, you know.
2: Uh, John would have had an awful time with the uh, uh, Netflix World, I mean, not awful, isn't he? Would have hated it, he would have lost himself,
0: yeah, exactly. exactly. For
2: weeks on end, and then canceled his account,
0: decided that
2: that was over, and then had to reactivate his account when he wanted to go on another binge,
0: exactly. And three more accounts, including Hulu, and yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: (laughs) (laughs)
2: He can sleep almost indefinitely. He's probably the laziest person in England. Physically lazy, he said. I don't mind writing or reading or watching or speaking, but sex is the only physical thing I can be bothered with anymore. Mm. That's a curious thing. I wonder if he's being deliberately provocative to Maureen by making that point about sex. Um, Possibly.
0: Oh, I think so. I think he's being very provocative. It sounds like he's flirting. Yeah. It sounds like he's both flirting with her, but also flirting with the whole of the UK, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the whole readership. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of putting it on blast, you know? John kind of reminds me of, like, a cat here, you know? he's He can be lazy and self-interested and self-centered with a desire really only to please himself. And he has this ability to just relax into whatever he's interested in at that time. But on the other side, there's this driven restless side of John. So, you know, this comment about him being the laziest person in England, I think this is a little bit of self image that John likes to perpetuate. I just think that John's um, so-called laziness is not necessarily laziness. I suspect his brain is working very hard. His imagination is, is quite fertile during these restful periods. And also, I do think he's being flirtatious with Maureen. Like, he's like, ah, oh, you know, I'm very basic except sex. It's very sexy, actually. That sure. kind of statement, you know? Yeah. At least to a woman. At least to a woman. <laughs>
2: Occasionally, he is driven to London in the rolls by an ex Welsh guardsman called Anthony. Anthony has a mustache that intrigues him, <laughs> as you say. What is that?
4: <laughs>
2: the day I visited him, he had been invited to lunch in London, about which he was rather excited. Do you know how long lunch lasts? He asks. I've never been to lunch before. I went to a lion's the other day and had an egg and chips and a cup of tea. The waiters kept looking and saying, No, it isn't him can't be.
0: (laughs) Yes, okay, so first of all, the the mustache that intrigues him. It's not like John said, huh, I could go home and do that. It's like he probably saw Anthony for two months and went, interesting.
2: Yeah, he doesn't think of men with moustaches as commonplace. He just looks at this one moustache and goes, isn't that strange?
0: Exactly. Again, (laughs) the strangeness could be... Partly from the fact that John may be high half the time these days, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When I wonder about her her wording. Has a mustache that intrigues him. Is that John's word or is that Maureen's word? Mm-hmm. You know, like to me, it reminds me of a child going up and looking at something curiously and then walking away. You know, yeah, yeah. Rather than thinking, I'm going to get a mustache because I think Paul was the first one with a mustache. When he went traveling in France, remember he went traveling, yeah. uh, or maybe it was in India. But, but Paul had one in the phone.
2: and it is it's a, it's later than than this. Um, yeah, it is sixty six, and I think at first it was a false moustache that he'd had it made was. for the trip.
0: <laughs> Which is hysterical because how long would it take him to grow a moustache?
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh dear.
0: But, uh, okay, so the next bit here, he's very excited about <laughs> lunch. This I've is what I've never been to lunch to. before.
2: What are you talking about? You've never had lunch in your life?
0: <laughs> well, this is what I mean about John being an alien dropped to earth as yeah. in his first day wandering around in a chauffeur being like, interesting, and, <laughs> you know, and obviously I think he's talking about the etiquette of a proper
4: lunch.
2: Sure, I a assume. society lunch, I guess.
0: Yes, where, again, one gets a sense that, John is so disinterested in the way that everybody else lives, he'd have no clue, and then he'd ask, whereas Paul wouldn't ask. You know, it reminds me of um, Donovan talking about teaching them how to play the the finger-picking style in in India, where John actually asked Donovan and was a good student and, and learned Whereas Donovan said, Paul would just pass by them and look at what they were doing and then <laughs> create his own version. Like he is not going to actually admit ignorance. Yeah. He's going to suss it out. And this is yeah. John sort of admitting, I don't know how to do society lunch. Do you know? And yeah. there's something very sweet about that. Yeah, um, that's the
2: very open side of him, isn't it? Whereas, yeah, the Paul's, uh, Paul's- kind of eyeing of it, it seems to imply a degree of suspicion on his part.
0: Well, there's suspicion, but also, you know, Donovan said, well, Paul's a genius, you know, he could just figure it out. But there's competitiveness with Paul. I think yeah. he, you know, like in his article, he says he doesn't like to not know things. And so if he doesn't know how a lunch is done, he will circle it and figure it out before mm, he mm-hmm. goes, whereas John would just admit, how does one do a lunch, you know?
2: Yeah, that's right. It's like Paul's approaching—I uh, don't know—an exotic beast really carefully, and and John's approach is just to walk straight up.
0: To <laughs> <it>. <laughs> and then he seems to have done a dry run by himself, saying he went to lions the other day and had egg mm. and chips and a cup of tea, and he seems to have gotten joy out of the fact that people weren't sure. You know, that must have mm. been a fun situation for him where. They didn't think he could be there, and yet he is the center of attention.
2: That's right, and and it also speaks to how observant he can be for someone who's also so self-centered. Um, he, you know, I think May Pang talks about how when he goes to restaurants, John is acutely aware of exactly how everyone in the room is reacting to his own presence.
0: But that's the point we were discussing before, and I think that's important. I think part of this whole interview is manufactured, mm-hmm. and that's the hard part is – Part of it is true. John is self centered and childlike, but John is also the world's greatest performer and he's brilliant. He knows what's charming to people, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah so. he certainly does. Yeah. settled himself into the car and demonstrated the television the folding bed the refrigerator the writing desk the telephone <laughs> uh, the reason i like that is that the way she's written the sentence seems to imply that the television the folding bed the refrigerator the writing desk and the telephone are all in his car <laughs> i think I she means think it is. so he's he's got a, a bed in the car and a fridge and a desk and it's good lord well, I don't
0: understand- understand it i mean i was like did he just invent like a a car of the 22nd century i don't know (laughs) it's because it seems to be a mobile home (laughs) also he's got a wireless phone apparently
4: yeah
2: oh my god he spent many fruitless hours on that telephone i only once got through to a person he said and they were out
0: (laughs) (laughs) I do know he did put a bed into his car. Uh, Also, how big is this Rolls Royce?
2: (laughs) Well, it also had a record player in it, didn't it? Um,
0: I I don't understand this, especially the phone thing. Mm. Does he just pull the phone from the house into his (laughs) car? (laughs) Because as far as I know, they did not have wireless phones in 1966.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, if anyone had one, I suppose it would be John Lennon. He seems to have everything.
0: Well, yeah, and at the end of it, she talks about the fact that in the, he's in his car with the television flickering too. So mm. I, I, I really don't know what to make of this. I mean, it, you know.
2: Yeah, I've read descriptions of his car that talk about the knot of aerials that all sat on top of it. So maybe that suggests they are there to power the TV and the phone and the radio and all the other electronic devices. <laughs> well, that makes
0: sense. And if yeah. that's the case, it's like the gorilla suit or the mirrors on the bottom. John's such an original, and he's so self-centered that he's like, "These are the things I want in my world. I like to be in my car, and I need a TV, and these are all the mm-hmm. things that." basically he invents the modern car.
2: Yeah, the car functions a bit like his special room or his bedroom at Weybridge, where he has to have all of his toys arranged around him for, you know, whichever one he might want to play with in a given moment.
0: <laughs> and of course, he doesn't actually know how to operate them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and This is something that persists as well. You read accounts that that people have written down about having gone to the Dakota in 1977 to, um, I don't know, fix uh, one of John's speakers. And he's got some $8,000 stereo and hasn't the faintest idea how to switch it on. <laughs> and they're still using a little tape recorder.
0: <laughs> well, also he has a bizarre fear of telephones have you heard about this like john's very very afraid of telephones and in the 70s like he will not make calls people have to call him and he has to work himself up for ages to use the phone no i didn't know that (laughs) sure but apparently in the 60s he was trying to make phone calls but it just wasn't (laughs) successful (laughs) (laughs) no
2: wonder wonder it's hilarious to imagine him without his glasses getting on a plane to paris (laughs) He can't figure out a phone. He's the idea of him wandering around in a foreign country. It's I hilarious. know.
0: It's a good thing he was a genius and the world's most charismatic person because otherwise he would be a disaster. Yeah. But this this goes, I think it builds. The idea of John as genius. He's almost helpless in the world.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You imagine him at that lion's, at the point at which he had to pay for the egg and chips and tea, just sort of pulling a fistful of money out of his pocket and proffering it to the person, not knowing the faintest idea how much <laughs> it cost
0: there's no way John paid for it I'm sure he sent a bill <laughs> to Brian or something like that but Paul is no better either I mean I think yeah. Paul signs stuff everywhere in France to yeah. to, to to Brian Epstein. George is yeah. the only
2: one who has money and even then it's sewn into the soles of his shoes
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: that's fitting too actually
0: I just want to point out that although we are highlighting some of John's helplessness, um, John is also savvy enough to get the best version of the biggest status symbol in the UK.
2: Yeah, yeah very true. Um. Anthony had spent the weekend in Wales. John asked if they'd kept a welcome for him on a hillside, and Anthony said they had. They discussed the possibility of an extension for the telephone. We had to call at the doctors because John had a bit of sea urchin in his toe. Don't want to be like Dorothy Dandridge, he'd said, dying of a splinter 50 years later. He added reassuringly that he had washed the foot in question.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> well he's very clean so that is good you know what made me laugh is John so delicate it reminds me of in get back remember when they're all trying to juggle and within two seconds you know you see John taping up his rock and roll finger that he's cut like he's yes. just I can't imagine John on Paul's farm for like an no. hour even
2: no he would be so out of place it would be like an alien in an alien landscape <laughs> Dr. We bowled along in a costly fashion through the countryside. Famous and loaded is how he describes himself now. They keep telling me I'm all right for money, but then I think I might have spent it all by the time I'm 40, so I keep going. That's why I started selling my cars. Then I changed my mind and got them all back and a new one, too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I love famous and loaded because the idea of like Saint John Lennon, man of peace, you know, that doesn't care about possessions, that was something that he, you know, that was a concept that he aspired to. But really and truly, this is John Lennon in 1966 being very happy that he's famous and loaded. He is bragging about this, yeah. You know, and this is John too. I don't mind this. All these guys came from nothing. They should be mm. able to celebrate the fact that they're famous and have lots of money, and they feel good about it. You know? Yeah,
2: yeah. You, uh, there's something about rock stars whereby you want them to enjoy their their wealth. And, um it's pleasing to read at least that Ringo seems to be able to do that. I like um the way we bowled along in a costly fashion through the countryside. It's a wonderful sentence. um you know what it's it reminds me it of have you, have you read um the Wind in the Willows yes. Then doesn't that remind you of John as a kind of Mr. Toad figure, <laughs> yes, getting carried away with his enthusiasms and driving off in a motor car absolutely. and maybe hitting someone on the way and saying, beep, oh, beep, out of my way, I'm a motorist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely John, out of my way. And that's actually going to connect to a quote that I'm going to share at the end that I think is really similar by Andrew Luke Oldham. Okay, But I, I love the famous and loaded because th- this is sort of arrogant John too. Mm. And I do like this John that's kind of just proud of the fact <laughs> that he is powerful. The yeah. fact that, and remember in the, um, the Ringo article, Ringo's like, I've got enough money. John is more ambitious realizing that it may not be enough money. You know what I mm. mean? Like when he's saying that he gets worried about this. Mm. And he says, they keep telling me I'm all right for money, but then I think I may have spent it all by the time I'm 40. So I keep going. That's Mm. why I started selling my cars. Then I changed my mind and I got them back and a new one too. There's an insecurity, a financial insecurity. So he's just said that I'm famous and loaded and, and he wants to keep it that way. And so he's got to keep working to make sure that he stays famous and loaded and I refer to the St. Regis article because do you remember when they're talking about money? And it's the most ridiculous part. John goes, um, he's talking about the fact that Paul's about to do a tour. This is in 1971, and Paul's about to start a tour. And John says that he's going to go to every city that Paul goes to and play for free next <laughs> yeah, to him. Yeah, And, and accuses
2: and, Paul of charging a million to see him when he's literally <laughs> charging 50p.
0: It's so crazy. And then in the next sentence or two, John talks about how he needs money and that Alan Klein has made him secure about money and how much money matters to him. Mm. And again, he says to the world that he's going to put on a free concert. In midst of Paul who's charging a million when in reality, Paul's the one that's practically giving away the concert and John's saying he's the one that needs to make money. You know, now, now, this is, this point is kind of undermined by the fact that Paul now charges a million for his concerts, but in those yeah. days.
2: Yeah, it's, it it makes me think John has this tendency to look at what Paul's doing and then make this defensive claim, if I were going to do that, I would be much better at it. But he never actually does the thing. So like <laughs> no. John actually goes out on tour and does the free concerts, whereas Paul is actually doing the thing.
0: <laughs> well, that's what I mean. Like Paul often walks the walk, you know. He yeah. actually d- does go and live with no possessions and does mm-hmm. free concerts. Um, I do think that John projects a lot onto Paul too. But in the St. Regis, Yoko and John do spend some time. Like, Yoko says that, yes, John's very insecure when it comes to money. And it's funny because the assumption is kind of that John is and Yoko isn't. And it's like, yeah, because Yoko comes from a filthy rich family, you know?
4: (laughs) Yeah.
0: I like
2: the fact that John isn't so worried about it that he doesn't just spend freely. (laughs) Uh, It's good. I actually, I I kind of admire it. I, I certainly admire it more than a miserly hoarding of riches. Like John isn't a prisoner of his own wealth in the way that some people might be if they were genuinely terrified of spending a cent and it all just sat there never being enjoyed
0: <laughs> well yes but john is in his own crazy cycle of buying things returning things and then getting more and then regretting it so Cold he's two steps he's back. exactly <laughs> that he is in a spin but but this is also really important to know about john and so mm. i say this because this plays into alan klein because in saint mm. regis He says that Alan Klein makes him feel better and secure about money. And that was a bad mistake because Alan Klein turned around and sued them. But um, John felt like he did. But I think this also plays into John's actions in 1969, you know, where he overextends, he buys a bigger place and therefore he needs Alan Klein. You know what I mean? Like, John's a mess when it comes to finances. And again, no criticism, because most rock stars are. But I think that we have to understand that that's also driving some of John's behavior, you know? Yeah. She said,
3: I know what it's like to be dead.
2: I want the money just to be rich. The only other way of getting it is to be born rich. If you have money, that's power without having to be powerful. I often think it's all a big conspiracy that the winners of the government, people like us, have got all the money. That joke about keeping the workers ignorant is still true. That's what they said about the Tories and the landowners and that. Then labor were meant to educate the workers, but they don't seem to be doing that anymore. Interesting contrast to working-class hero John Lennon in oh, some ways. Oh,
0: absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I had that written too. <laughs> that is really a theoretical concept and not reality when it comes to John Lennon, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's easy to be critical of imagine no possessions and, and compare it to a quote like, I want the money just to be rich. Um, it makes me think, though, he's not necessarily being hypocritical. Maybe it's more that he, he just tends to swing from one extreme to the other. And he genuinely believes, um, oh, for sure. whatever thing he's in at the time, like that, that line Absolutely. of hers about having the idea wrapped around his brain it makes me think, um, of Alan Klein again, because if you think about what was happening pre Alan Klein, they, they had all these grand visions of yeah. Apple as this, um, benign organization they even said things like you know we've made all the money that anyone could possibly ever need so we've decided to give the rest away and then after that idea doesn't really work and they get tired of it the next thing they do is the polar opposite and they bring in the sharkiest shark that ever sharked to try and get them as much money as possible
0: I'm not necessarily critical of the Imagine No Possessions because John doesn't like the fact that he is insecure about money. It's, it's mm. a frustration to him. I'm sure that John does want to feel okay without any possessions. So I, I'm not critical of that. It's more the working class hero <laughs> that yeah. I think it is, is the one that I'm kind of like, Oh, John. But, but I think this line, I want the money just to be rich. The only other way of getting it is to be born rich. If you have money, that's power without having to be powerful. In some ways I think that John's desire for money is for power. Mm. You know, and, and it makes me wonder, like thinking about um Hunter Davies book and all of his friends saying that he always always had to be the top. He was so competitive. It w- makes me wonder if John felt very powerless or is afraid of being powerless at some point in his life. Yeah. You know?
2: Do you think um Power is also sort of synonymous with freedom in the way he thinks about things. A lot of people would talk about, you know, what the money buys you is time or or freedom or the fuck you money being, meaning that you're able to live entirely on your own terms and not be beholden to anyone or anything. Do you think that's kind of what he's talking about
0: here? I do. Uh, Although I get that sense a little bit more with Polaringo with John. Just think about this with John. I get more the sense that it is comparative in some ways. Like there is John is competitive with. Maybe the power reinforces the notion that he's special and that he can live in his bubble. So yes, it is a freedom to live, to be (laughs) John Lennon. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I'm sure it is in some ways.
2: Mm. It's but a curious,
4: a,
0: yeah. a,
2: I don't quite want, know what to make of it. I'm tempted to think, does he mean when he says power without having to be powerful, does he mean real power means not having to exercise that power all of the time?
0: Absolutely. I think he means that. Yeah. I, I think he means not having to fight for anything. Mm. That you know, He talks about some people being so rich he doesn't even know where they are, mm. that, that, which is probably where John Lennon wants to be. Um what he suggests later on. Yeah. Um But this idea of being so powerful that you don't even need to play the game, that you don't have to fight for anything or play within the rules, you know?
4: Yeah, very true. He has
2: a morbid fear of stupid people. Famous and loaded as I am, I still have to meet soft people. It often comes into my mind that I'm not really rich. There are really rich people, but I don't know where they are. Hmm. Yeah, like there's some... Exclusive club that no matter how wealthy and famous he gets, he still is being denied access to.
0: <laughs> right, 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 and and it's kind of like Lynch. He's got a <laughs> sense that there's another strata, but he hasn't yeah. quite cracked it yet.
4: Yeah,
1: you totally.
0: know. But but also he would like to crack it, you know, because Absolutely. he says. Here, he has a morbid horror of stupid people. Famous and loaded as I am, I still have to meet so people. Mm. So, he would like to not have to <laughs> yeah, meet yeah, for people. Him,
2: yeah, for him, fame, power, money, the, it, what it translates to is being free of all obligation.
0: <laughs> well, and it's an interesting one, this idea of like, why does he have a morbid horror of stupid people? You know, maybe
2: because it's linked to what you say about you know, the worst thing to a beetle is when someone's boring is stupidity um linked to that
0: I think so, and I think it's also i think that uh John probably has a horror of being normal or average or ordinary and and he's not you know no. John is brilliant but i I, I think he probably doesn't like to be among them because that might reinforce that he's not special. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Why, 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 why? This is where John's lack of empathy comes in. Whereas, and I hate to compare them, but Paul seems to have empathy for humankind. John has this morbid horror of stupid people. Maybe it's because he
2: has a slightly sponge-like personality. He, um, uh, he, he, he sort of soaks up energy and ideas and as we were saying earlier he he can universalize or popularize them in a very lenin-esque way but to be stuck in a room with stupid people would mean you're only kind of soaking up stupidity and becoming more stupid yourself
0: yeah yeah and maybe it's frustration from his youth like being in school with a bunch of people who didn't really get him Mm -hmm. and not being especially appreciated in that environment Mm i don't know i don't know but i i like anytime it says he has a morbid horror of stupid people that's something that he's reacting to
4: mm-hmm. you know
0: like it's not just that i feel sorry for them you know and when i'm around them i'm kind of bored it's kind of like there's something that he's emotionally like i don't want to be like either there's something that he's doesn't like yeah
4: <laughs>
2: He finds being famous quite easy, confirming one's suspicion that the Beatles had been leading up to this all their lives. Everybody thinks they would have been famous if only that had the Latin in it. So when it happens, it comes naturally. You remember your old granny saying soft things like, you'll make it with that voice. Not, he added, that he had any old grannies. I think there's a reference, uh, it's quite an embedded cultural reference to Peter Cook and Beyond the Fringe here. That's what he's referring to when he says, if only they'd had the Latin. Um, If listeners don't know, this famous sketch from Beyond the Fringe with Peter Cook as a minor saying, I could have been a judge, but I never had the Latin.
0: Uh, The first part of this, he finds being famous quite easy confirming one's suspicion that the Beatles have been leading up to this all their lives. I think that this is a good statement, but you also get this insight into John's mind that, you know, we've been talking about this the whole time that I suspect that John has always been split in worrying about the fact that he's not normal and then loving the fact that he's not normal. Mm. And, you know, for somebody who probably had to make sense of the fact that I don't live with my parents, And he was treated like something incredibly special by Mimi. Mimi plucked him, you know, and said, I want you to live here and indulged his creativity. And that's part of his identity, too, is I am incredibly special. And, you know, all of his life, people probably said that about John. He was especially witty. He was charismatic. And so i I actually believe it when John gets famous that he's like, "Of course, yeah,
2: it makes me think of him as a as a boy. Um, the point is made in philip norman's biography. Tell me if you agree with it that far from nobody wanting John and him being abandoned as a child, almost the opposite was true, that there were so many." parties vying to take custody of John. Everyone wanted John in their lives. Um, and that it was just sort of a, a peculiarity of John's to translate that uh, jealous guarding of, of custody ship as nobody wants me.
0: Well, I, I agree with that from the accounts. It does seem like his mother wanted him. His father tried to take him and Mimi, like I said, I don't know if it had been a different child, if Mimi would have taken that child because Julia had another child and it was given up for adoption. You know what I mean? So I think that John was a a special child. But certainly to him, from his perspective, his mother didn't fight hard enough for him. Mm. I kind of agree with Norman and I kind of don't because Julia could have fought harder Mm. for him and said, absolutely not. I mean, you know, who knows? In those days, maybe it wasn't so easy. Um, Alf could have found a place around the corner from him to make sure he was in John's life. Mm. But certainly, he was desired. It's not like he was left on a doorstep and nobody wanted him and Mimi said, okay. Mimi aggressively went after him because she thought that he deserved something better. But certainly to him, it would have seemed that way. There's no way yeah. that as a child he would have internalized the fact that everybody wants me and I ended up in the best place, you know?
2: Yeah. I, I agree to, with Philip Norman to the extent that, um, yeah, the different interests conflicted in terms of who was going to take care of John and everyone seemed to want to do it. Um, and that maybe the, the case that, uh, Mimi, no, not me, sorry, Julia, Julia and Alf, uh, well, ill-prepared and maybe not very good parents, irresponsible parents. But John seems to then make the assumption that they therefore didn't want him. Yes. Um, And I think that that's maybe a leap too far.
0: Yes and no. I I do think that ultimately they didn't want him enough to step up and become responsible. But, again, that has nothing to do with John himself. That has to do with them. They yeah. were just not ready for, they were yeah. just not responsible enough to have a kid. Or, you know, if you hear from John's sister, Julia, she says that Mimi was too aggressive with taking John. And, and so that's a whole other thing. But from John's perspective, it certainly would have been that his parents didn't love him enough to fight for him. That he probably internalized that, you know, this is why John has to go through all the therapy for the rest of his life is feeling like I'm not good enough. And then the other half of him feeling like, I am special. And the fact that he does have that reflected back to him constantly. He is brilliant. I can understand why John ended up so confused. Yeah. You know? So confused. And he talks about Paul being much more stable than him. It's like, even though he knew he was special, he didn't have that and lovable you know, and worth fighting for. I think he always wanted people, you know, and that potentially that's why he was so brokenhearted when Paul actually walked away, Mm. because I'm sure that John spent his life wanting people to fight for him, which is what Yoko did.
4: That's very true. That's also very perceptive. Yeah. Yeah.
2: He got to the doctor two and three quarter hours early and to (laughs) lunch on time, but in the wrong place. (laughs) 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 John. He bought a giant compendium of games from Asprey's, but having opened it, he could not, of course, shut it again. He wondered what else he should buy. (laughs) He went to Brian Epstein's office. Any presents? He asked eagerly. He observed that there was nothing like getting things free. He tried on the attractive Miss Hansen's spectacles. (laughs)
0: Again, this you get an image that John is a five-year-old wandering yeah. around, you know, having fun, looking for presents. And yeah. but, but that sounds kind of derogatory, but I, I mean it in the best way in that it's kind of a joy in John's world because he has fun everywhere he mm. goes.
2: <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of even when he's 40, on his 40th birthday, Yoko presents him with this um, hand-knitted tie she's made made him and apparently his reaction is to be slightly bummed out that on his 40th birthday this is his present, some hand knitted tie and then she of course presents him with a patek philippe watch and this diamond and ruby and sapphire encrusted american flag pendant and then he's quite happy he has <laughs> these presents and there's photos of him sort of gleefully showing them off and i always want to say john do you realize that you could go out and buy yourself any of these things anytime you want. <laughs> but that's not, not, not important. You know, he, he has to have them given to him as presents.
0: Exactly. <laughs> and and you know what? This is so human too. It is fun to get things free. Of course yeah, it is. wonderful things. And I also must say, I do absolutely understand getting <laughs> to appointments at the wrong time, at the wrong place. And that <laughs> makes me love John Lennon. Yeah because you don't get the sense that he's like you know all business-like i mean this is very portrait of an artist that is generally clueless about the practicalities of life
2: yeah totally and it is endearing as you say it um it makes you like him more
4: not less
0: yes and he tries on the attractive miss hansen spectacles (laughs) again it's like this is how john flirts Mm. you know he's kind of playful with people and
4: Mm. you know
2: and and there's that sort of provocative thing too because you're taking somebody's glasses and, and trying them on, that, that, that is a slight invasion of personal space. Oh,
0: totally. And like yeah,
2: totally. there's something, the, 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 the the, the, yeah, it's intimate and it's slightly threatening, but in a way that some people at least would find turns them on, I guess.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely, because he would do it in a playful way, you know? Yeah. It reminds me of what we read last time about how he would go across the floor and then touch Maureen and give her an electric shock.
2: Yeah, yeah, taking a coat and putting it in the waste paper basket. (laughs) 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 All right. the rumor came through that a beetle had been sighted walking down Oxford Street. He brightened. One of the others must be out, he said, as though speaking of an escaped bear. We only let them out one at a time, said the attractive Miss Hanson firmly. <laughs> 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 it's always hard days and nightish, isn't it? Oh, it's um, totally.
0: It's but, like, but, but Okay. Carry on.
2: No, no, no! Just like the manager they have in that film, who treats them like prisoners. <laughs> and I, sometimes, when I was younger, I, when I watched Hard Days I would get angry at the way that manager would boss them around, and I would want to like intervene in the scene and say, "Do you realise that you work for them and not the right, other way right, around?"
0: Right. Right, right. Except for then you read the paragraph that says that he got to the doctor two and, two and three quarter hours early and lunch on time but in the wrong place. And you kind of think, maybe it's good that they have these people bossing them around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this idea of one of the others must be out as though speaking of an escape there. That has always stayed with me, that mm. sentence. Because even though John's in his little bubble, there is a kinship with the other Beatles. Like he's excited by hearing about one of the other Beatles out there. It's kind of like John couldn't care less about anybody except the other Beatles. Yeah. And then he's excited about it. You know what I mean? The only people that he's interested in are the other Beatles. And I love that.
2: And it's also vaguely childlike to assume that because a report had come through that a beetle was on Oxford Street that it must therefore be true. There's no possibility that it was just a guy with a (laughs) mop-top haircut.
3: (laughs) It must have been Paul. (laughs) He's a real nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land. Making all
2: his nowhere plans for nobody. Doesn't oh, dear. Okay, well, we're nearly at the end. Okay. Um, he said that to live and have a laugh were the things to do. But was that enough for the restless spirit? Waybridge, he said, won't do it all. I'm just stopping at it like a bus stop. Bankers and stockbrokers live there. They can add figures and Weybridges where they live, and they think it's the end. They really do. I think of it every day, me and my Hansel and Gretel house. I'll take my time. I'll get my real house when I know what I want. Ah, This is one of the most interesting paragraphs in this entire article. First of all, John is able, without the slightest effort to match the quality of Maureen Cleave's own metaphors and descriptions. I mean, she does a really good thing. She does it very well when she talks about the house being mock Tudor and she makes the comparison to Henry VIII. Mm. This shows what a great writer she is. Mm -hmm. But then John can casually refer to his Hansel and Gretel house. And you think that metaphor is actually better. It's more revealing. And now I can't look. And mm-hmm. that house without thinking of it, it's sort of Hansel and Gretel house. It's just such a perfect description. But it's
0: also very childlike too. Yeah, you know, yeah, in the way yeah. that John loves his um Alice through the looking glass. You know, yeah. it's absolutely perfect.
2: And I love this phrase, I'll get my real house when I know what I want. The mm-hmm. word that really is written in neon in that sentence to me is real.
4: Real, exactly.
2: Um, John seems to have this obsession with either truth or reality. And sometimes he was obsessed with the opposite, like Strawberry Fields' Nothing is Real.
4: Mm-hmm. But he
2: also sang a song about how important real, real love. love
4: was. Yeah.
2: So, yeah, real to him is a very... Particular. It's a word that does a lot of heavy lifting in his vocabulary in the way that the word little has, does a lot of heavy lifting in Paul's vocabulary. Paul has this tendency to, um, I don't know. It's, it's hard to know quite how to describe it Miniaturize. even. Miniaturize. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, Paul likes to de-emphasize the weight of things. Yes through using the word little to take their edge off. Whereas John likes to emphasize their weight to reassure himself of their solidity or their permanence. And he does it in words like true and real.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Give me some truth, Mr. Real love. Yes, for sure. I mean, again, we're talking about somebody who's doing a ton of acid at this time. (laughs) And so there is when he's living in this extremely unreal world but you know this idea of a restless spirit is that i think what john is looking for is some groundedness a feeling of being solid and home yes you know and and that's what he doesn't feel here and it doesn't have anything to do with the house mm. it's the fact that he isn't comfortable with himself probably mm. and mm. and you know what he's 25 like in part of this part of this is meaningful and part of this is not meaningful to me in that he's 25 years old. He probably should not be thinking of this as where he's going to spend the rest of his life. You know what I mean? Like all the Beatles should be thinking like, great, this is where we're going to live for now, you know, Mm. and, and we will grow and expand. And so I I don't actually take it as meaningfully as some people, Paul and George and both of theirs talk about what they're going to do next as well. This is not unique Mm. to John. Mm. But I do think you're right to to talk about that real house, like the house that will be meaningful and truthful and the thing that is me. And I remember how um, in Ringo's, we talked about how he liked the look and feel of his place. Apparently, John didn't really like the look of how they had decorated his place. Like it wasn't him. But there's a sense that John doesn't really know himself or what he likes yeah. yet. And the next paragraph about that's why he's experimenting and exploring. And, and I kind of think, good. Again, you're 25. You've been on tour for the past like seven years. Maybe you do need to spend some time just getting to know yourself. In some ways, they've created this massive amount of work. and And I actually think that John hasn't had the time to figure out that what he's doing is important. It's somewhere sure. out there you know it's like what he's going to do is out there his real house is out there mm. you know what i mean
1: yeah
2: it's- i know but but also this this um compulsion to believe that there is some sort of holy grail waiting around yes. a corner if he could only find the right corner and grab it um yeah sometimes i want to tell john i don't know that it's there mate i don't know that you know the inside the chapel perilous of rock and roll, there is such a thing as truth or reality. If you haven't discovered it yet, it's like John wanting to get the answer from the, the Maharishi. Um,
0: And then deciding Yoko's the answer. That's right. That's right. right.
2: And and, and I want to say, John, there is no answer. There's only different ways of asking questions.
0: I think that eventually he figures out that it's, it's kind of, he's kind of running from himself. Like Hmm. if he feels stable, then everything around him is actually stable. And when he says real love, that's probably an important statement, is that he recognizes that that was real love. You know, he was always looking for a different love. Mm. But what he had was real, that the, the community he had was real, that his life there was real. Yeah. And so when people read this and sort of say, well, you know, John wasn't happy there, well, this is whole John's life. Is he's is, always in this mode. He, he's position. always in this yeah. mode. Yes. You know, then he and Yoko move to um Titners, and they're only there for a bit. And then they move to St. Regis. They live in a yeah, hotel yeah. which is impermanent. And they move to the village and that's impermanent. And then he's constantly moving with May Pang. Mm. So it's it's really lit I think he just needs to find some permanence and some groundedness in himself. But on the other hand, I do understand why John Lennon would be like I mean he's he's an incredible creative source. I, I get it why he would be like, well, this isn't the end for me. One should hope not, you know? Yeah. As much as I say all this, you know who never friggin' moved from their place?
2: Paul McCartney.
0: Paul McCartney <laughs> buys his place and he's that still so there. <laughs> So, John is always fleeing, trying to find stability, and I don't know paul is Paul's got his own issues that Paul mm. in some ways needs permanence to feel stable, you mm. know
2: and sometimes I get the idea that with Paul, even when he he tries to motivate himself to to do something that's um new and unexpected, he ends up recreating something that already exists. Like they move out of the Waterfalls house in Surrey and he decides to build this new family house. But what he builds is kind of like <laughs> a slightly grander <laughs> version of his old family's house from Liverpool. It looks like a, a big two up, two down.
0: <laughs> I know. Well, again, Paul and his money issues as Adolio issue <laughs> that requires some deep analysis. But, um, but yeah, this is John's issue. But then there's the next bit. Did you read
2: this last bit? Do you want to read this last bit? Yeah, we've only got a tiny bit to go, so let me get there. You see, there's something else I'm going to do, something I must do, only I don't know what it is. That's why I go around painting and taping and drawing and writing and that, because it may be one of them. All I know is this isn't for me. Anthony got him in the compendium into the oh, car and drove let, him home. Let's actually, let's
0: actually stop there because okay. that's an important uh, statement, I think. Mm. Um, so this idea of this feeling that he must do something else—this is about purpose. And I suspect—I was thinking about this: this need to do something great in the world. You know, he talks later in Plasticono Band about how his childhood issues made him feel like he had to be famous and has something to prove. I get the sense that he has a desire to do something something great to prove himself in the world. And that's an underlying driver here that he wants to both be recognized as being lovable and, and his worth uh, to be seen, but also because he's special, he probably thinks he has to do something big and special.
2: Yeah. And there's a pattern of that in the way he talks about his own creative projects. Um, And I think double fantasy is particularly well documented. Um, You read Kenneth Womack's uh, Last Days of John Lennon book. You, you get a strong sense of someone who believed passionately that this was going to be the great project that would redefine everything. It would launch Yoko. It would bring him back. Uh, it was going to be this extraordinary heart play between two geniuses. No one had ever done that before. And then when the album is made and it comes out, his own pronouncements on it, at least the private, more private ones, seem to be mildly disappointed, not just with the critical reaction, but with the artistic achievement. Yes. Like he listened to um, Bruce Springsteen's album The River and said, well, that's better than double fantasy. Yeah.
0: Well, and that's the thing about John and his enthusiasm is that, you know, it's, it's part of what propels him to be an incredible artist. And you see yeah. that with Paul too. You know, Paul, Paul thought Press to Play was going to be the best yeah. album ever, but there's always this sense of it has to have deeper meaning. Mm. It can't just be a work of art. It has for John. He almost needs to have this, like, it's going to do something in the world. Yeah, you know that it's gonna it's bigger than me Mm. i can see how john and yoko had this connection because i I think john and yoko were very similar in some ways Mm. and but yoko was good at framing the art they were doing and the political activism as something that was meaningful and big in the world and kind of unfortunately diminishing some of the um, work that he was doing with the Beatles. And Martin Carr, when I was speaking to him, like he, he, he circled this issue a couple of times. He found it curious that they, the Beatles all made fun of the, um, Beatlemania, um, songs. That he was like, they kind of make fun of those, like they're not real art. You know, he, he's like, every time they talk about those, they make fun of them. It's like the pre Beatles stuff is they take seriously and the post touring stuff they take seriously. But I think there's something about it being so
4: commercially
0: massive that maybe they it made it seem not legitimately artistic.
4: Mm.
0: And maybe they wrote it so quickly and so on demand, like it was just like being manufactured, that maybe it didn't seem like it was real art. But one gets the sense when you read this that John doesn't recognize the meaning and the artistry of what he's doing right now because of his desire to do something meaningful. And, and this idea of what I'm doing right now isn't it, right?
2: Yeah, I know. I think it's a shame that he took that turn against uh, the Beatles' own work, um, because I, I completely agree with what you're saying about how, I mean, you, you weren't saying it directly, but I get the sense that you're implying that uh, something that is hugely commercially successful Shouldn't necessarily be considered lesser than because it has that quality to
0: it. Well, that's exactly that's exactly. I completely I, agree.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah I that, completely that agree. Almost that it, the the commercial success of the Beatles almost undermined their view of the artistic integrity of it. Mm. Like it,
2: yeah. Yoko certainly reinforced. A, a, she drove a wedge between um, art and I suppose entertainment. Yes. In, in the way John thought about these things.
0: That's right. And that's a shame
2: because, yeah, uh, uh, to me, it's a shame because John's music is at his best when it does both of these
0: things at the same time. That's right. That's right. And and I don't judge John for not recognizing that what they were doing was meaningful, but I Mm. can see how Yoko coming in and saying, well, there's other things that we can do. And, And I don't want to judge which is more meaningful, but one can see the attraction of Yoko, and John both being idealists. And, you know, that period didn't last for very long. It's really two or three years. But at least maybe he felt like, I did something in the world.
2: Anthony got him and the compendium into the car and drove him home with the television flickering in the soothing darkness while the Londoners outside rushed home from work. There's a couple of things about it that I think are interesting and perceptive of Cleve for having written. That phrase... With the television flickering in the soothing darkness, suggest, it's kind of leisurely written. There's a sort of um, listless meandering quality to what she's describing or the way John is living his life, yeah. in contrast to yes. commuters in London rushing home. So right. it's all about the difference between how John Lennon lives and how most ordinary people live. Um But I think what's kind of implied in there as well is the Londoners rushing home from work might think all of the things that John Lennon has or has achieved are what they might be striving for to be able to get out of this rat race. But John Lennon, who's not part of this rat race, now leads this sort of listless life as a result, and it's not this holy grail that you might think it is. That seems to be in the background of what she's saying there, too.
0: Yeah, because is a really incredible ending to this this profile. Is one gets the sense that John is lonely. Mm. You know, they're all rushing home to to be with
2: somebody, to and, be with and, something, and to the warmth. John, John exactly. is avoiding going home. If anything,
0: yes, like it cuts a very lonely figure of John. Mm in a car with the tv flickering you know distracting him i i I find it very sad actually Mm -hmm. to a profile that overall isn't sad to me because john at this point is still brash and on a bit of a high but she ends on an issue for john in that john is in his own little bubble but that's a double-edged sword is that he is alone Mm -hmm. You know, alone and secluded from the world. And that's kind of lonely. And you're right. It's like John isn't alone. John has a son and a wife that's at home. He has a big house. He could be the exact same situation as Ringo, and yet he's not. Mm. You know? Yeah,
2: it's a very downbeat ending and an unresolved.
0: Very unresolved. I kind of feel buoyed, and John's very funny and childlike. But then it ends on them this very kind of sad note, unresolved. Mm. And literally you get the dot, dot, dot Yoko based based on that because John is alone in his bubble. He loves the Beatles. He wants to be in the gorilla suits running around with them, but they're not game to do this. And the only person he truly sees as his intellectual equal is Paul. Mm. Paul, as she points out, is not playing with John. He's off doing his own thing. Yeah. John needs somebody. Yeah. You know?
2: Yeah. I, I certainly do see the dot 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 Yoko side of things. And interesting that you mentioned the gorilla suit as well. Uh, cause if the Beatles weren't interested in getting into a gorilla suit and driving around in a Ferrari, it's something that Yoko would do. It um, is something y- that y- I could totally imagine an alternate universe in which that was one of their avant garde projects. If it wasn't baggism, <laughs> then guerrillaism might have been the thing.
0: <laughs> if they could have filmed it, they would have done it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, remember, they go they off go a the hot air balloon? Yeah. And uh, But the important thing for both of them is that it was being filmed, you know, mm. that it was being recorded. But he needed somebody like when Cynthia was looking. Back in 1968, she made the point that John was looking for somebody who would be his companion, who is as close to a mate as possible. Mm. And, you know, that in a way is a very sexist way of saying, you know, that he's looking for an equal and, and a, a playmate. And the only person who believes they're as rarefied and unique in this world is Yoko Ono. <laughs> and so she is kind of the, the perfect um, match to him. And she was up for anything. Paul could have been this person, but Paul doesn't seem to be interested in doing this. Paul is off doing his own thing. Mm-hmm. We do know from this this profile John seems on a high, he's flirtatious or he's confident, he's loaded, and one gets a sense that life is an adventure with John, mm-hmm. you know from this until this final bit. But at some point, one gets the sense that John is going to crash. Mm. You know, and he needs somebody there with him. And we do know from the interview that he gives to Miles that he talks about going through murder. It suggests that there is, he was going through a period of being down when Paul was not around. And so I, I don't necessarily want to connect it to Paul, but, but Paul is conspicuously absent here.
4: Mm. Yeah.
2: Uh, she mentions his absence once or twice, but the absence is some ways even more pronounced when he isn't mentioned. Like when that paragraph I alluded to earlier, when every other Beatle and spouse is referred to as dropping in or dropping out or John dropping in on them and Paul's name just doesn't appear.
0: Right. And I think the the old school jean jacket would say, well, it's because, you know, Paul doesn't matter to John. But given the fact that John talks about Paul as being his metaphorical spouse for the rest of his life. And, you know, in this article, when he's talking about this depressive period, the person he alludes to is mm-hmm. Paul. And then he says that Yoko came around and saw him and said, And so she became the answer. And so, what he was looking for is somebody to see him and to recognize him.
4: Yeah.
0: From my perspective, I think that Don probably has great highs and great lows. Hmm. And I think when he's the center of attention of a reporter, especially a reporter that's as attractive and talented and smart and fun as as Maureen Cleave, he probably was enjoying this. But the minute that she is just observing him and pulling away when it's just John, you know, he talked about the depressive time being when the cameras are off him. And that's the sense that I get at that final, final end, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah, Maureen Cleve seems to function for John in the way that a camera crew would in 1969. Yeah.
0: Exactly. I, I can see how when Yoko came in, that she fulfilled a need for, for him to try and find himself. You know, mm. like she was willing to go and do Janov and that he wrote Plastic Ono Band and, you know, the really deep dive into his childhood. Like he almost needed to do that. Mm. to reconcile or try to try and ground himself.
4: Mm.
0: But at the same time, what they did do also is they distanced themselves from the Beatles community. And John likes being special, but he also likes being part of the Beatles. Like that's part of his community. And he was pulled away from that. And I think that that was problematic. Yeah okay now having finished all that what are your like final thoughts on this piece on what it says about john
2: good question and it's hard for me to come up with a, a quick answer to that i think like you i get a sense of the majority of the article painting a picture of somebody who has Intense enthusiasms, even if they may be a little bit shallow and brief and he hops from one to the other. I get the impression of someone whose head is turned quickly by the next shiny thing. Um, and that there's a sort of a childlike quality to that, or that's maybe part of the Henry the eighth quality. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, it's like all of the, the stuffing has been removed from this person. They're, they're kind of hollowed out and it seems to be, at the very end, less a, a portrait of John Lennon and more, um Maureen Cleve herself, watching him receding into the distance and wondering whether she gets him at all. Um, do you get a sense of that? Please?
0: Absolutely. It's an interesting point. She starts the article with fame, and then she goes on this adventure with John, and, and then, like you said, that she's pulling away and observing him again. At, at once he was knowable for her, and then she's she's just watching him. You do get a sense that he is a little bit unknowable.
2: That lemon phrase about the eye of the hurricane seems kind of relevant, too. And Weybridge would be like the, the kind of still center... And then going to Asprey's or going into NEMS or whatever, that's like the sort of hurricane environment. And now this is that still moment when the hurricane has passed and you're kind of left standing there as the person who had just experienced it all, wondering what to make of it all and, and where to go from
4: here.
0: Yeah, it's such an interesting way to end the article. This is John when he is full of swagger and confidence, at least when talking to her. You know, when he's proud to be loaded and famous and he, he's very comfortable with his elevated iconic status. I read this and think it's a grand adventure. But you do also get this sense that John is um is restless and he's barreling on. Remember how we talked about the Wind in the Willows, Mr. Toad in in, in his car? And I, I mentioned this quote by Andrew Luke Oldham because I think it's interesting. Is from his book, Rolling Stone, from 2011. And I think he definitely overstates his importance to John. So, you know, we'll just ignore that. But he said, I never knew John Lennon very well. But the times I spent with him were perhaps a mind-mapping experience for both of us. He looked, I floated. I looked, he floated. I could sit next to him in a cab or a club, and regardless of whatever war we were both fighting at that time, I found peace around him, and I think it was mutual. Oh, I had laughed with him. But in his physical presence, I breathed a sigh of relief. Around John, life was always easy. Paul has always been another chapter. His curiosity was honed and skilled. He didn't, like Lennon or me, crash his way through life's high street. John and I scattered broken dreams in our wake in order to preserve our own reality. At once innocent and crafty, Paul never seemed to realize he was center stage, which he always was. And perhaps that was his saving grace for his sanity as the world smothered the Beatles with its approval. And, you know, it's interesting to compare Paul and John, and we'll talk about Paul in his profile. But I do find what he says about John, he says that he and Lennon crashed their way through life's high street And they scattered broken dreams in their wake in order to preserve their own reality. And I do get a sense of that, that it's a grand adventure, but John is barreling through life and trying to, like the, trying to keep things exciting. And that last scene gives me the sense that when he stops, that that's maybe where there's, loneliness and so i love this article because it gives us john on the high and i think that's real john too but then there's this other side when the music stops when he's alone when he's he's not on camera and that to me is the john that you see in his his roles with the tv flickering at the end
2: i agree and i said earlier that i think um In this article, Maureen
4: functions
2: much like the camera that John performs at or for and which um, fuels his energy. Maybe she is perceptive enough here to realize that in his car sort of trailing away into the distance because she's no longer there to provide that function, his personality is kind of flipping over to its other side.
0: I think she is. I think that's what she's saying because. She didn't say. John barreled off in his rolls off to his next adventure. She paints a lonely portrait. It's kind of like a child on their own. Eventually, is unhappy, and there there is a very childlike side to John that's both so enduring, but also is his vulnerability. Yeah,
2: and it's it's sweet. It actually it makes me like John that um that it's not enough for him to enjoy something. He wants to share that enjoyment with others. I think that's quite a a lovely impulse. But it also makes him a bit bit more of a tragic figure, perhaps. There's something quite innocent about his enthusiasms, um, even if you might think that that innocence translates to naivety in the way that, Gloria Emerson does.
0: That's right. The Lennon that appeared in 1969 was a little bit more condescending. Like, even though John's running around and saying ridiculous things like, you know, I'm rich and loaded and, you know, I don't want to talk to soft people, you get the sense that John is just kind of silly. Whereas John is really taking himself seriously. And I, and I, 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 I admire the fact that he's, Talking about a serious issue, which is peace.
2: I, in that interview, I, I find it difficult not to not to see it from both their perspectives. Yeah, I see that that John is being um, a little bit either innocent or naive. Naive, if you yeah. want to be critical, um, and she's being perhaps a little bit uh, condescending or arrogant um, in return. And yeah, it's it's a challenging scene to watch, but it's a
4: fascinating scene to watch as well.
0: I think that John did not change as a person, but I think his outward persona changed a little bit. The John Lennon that you meet here, you'd want to hang out with. Like I feel like John Lennon's life is groovy and Mm -hmm. it's fun. And he's running around and exploring lunch and has (laughs) Sydney in a gorilla suits and, you know, hanging with the guys and playing music like that world seems fun whereas the john lennon that you meet in 69 is kind of like i know what's best and it is a little bit sanctimonious
2: yeah i do know what you mean um and maybe this isn't the best word for it but sometimes when i watch footage of of john circa 69 70 a a, a word that i want to use for his behavior is spiky there just seems to be something spiky about him to me
0: oh yeah There's a defensiveness about John in 1968,
4: 69, 70 that
0: there isn't here. Like this is John with swagger.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And I think you
2: talked about how the softness of his features makes him potentially more accessible or likable. But I think that's reflected in his personality as well. Yes. Yes. So later on when he's lost weight, there's also something sort of harsher and, and more angular about his behavior that there isn't here.
0: Well, I think something triggered John. Something in, in 1968 triggered John, whatever it was. And after that, he always had this defensiveness. And then John and Yoko... You know, they had to deal with so much negative press that, you know, exacerbated it. And then the peace movement, then it became, a, you know, them and us. And, you know, as we said at the beginning, John has not had a big failure or a big backlash yet. This is before the bigger than Jesus. He hasn't felt the backlash yet.
4: Mm, yeah,
2: that's a very good point. He hasn't felt um, threatened or wounded by the the circling wolves yet, whereas later
1: on he's had a couple of experiences of that. And so, yeah, he he can get
2: into a spikier or more defensive mode as a result.
0: Yeah, but I do want to point out that the – spikiness of John did not really appear until 68 until mid 68 because everybody around John in 67 said that he was very happy so I think the spikiness came later and I think something else triggered it but then you know this could be playing into that all of these issues um, came to play I really love this John Lennon. just a curious Open, original person. Like this is how I see John in this period: arrogant, but also very generous, without the spikiness.
4: Do you
2: see that that John Lennon re-emerges in seventy three, or is that another John
0: altogether? I think that he's lost a little bit of his innocence at that time, but he loses some of his defensiveness and regains a little bit of softness at that point, and so it could be the combination of John and Yoko too. They're both hugely idealistic and so they do good together but they also, you know, Mei Pang talks about the fact that they also get uniquely paranoid together and see it as the world versus them. What do you think?
2: Yeah, well I, I asked the question because I had a sense that um, uh,
4: the I would say that. accessible
2: gregarious John of 1973 has more in common with this 1966 John than he does with the John and Yoko love story.
0: Well, it's not pronounced in John's article, but she does make the point that they're going to Ringo's, that there's all this interaction. And she makes the point that they're better friends than e- ever. And so even though that's not a dominant part of this article, it's there, that they're closer than ever. And as we said with Ringo, Ringo sees his place as the drummer i think john's self identity is so wrapped around the beatles you know this the, the john lennon character and for that he needs the other beatles you know and it would be hard to overstate the closeness of paul and john even though paul's not around i think that emotionally they feel so close and i think that that was very hard on both of them to have been ripped apart, and that's part of the spikiness. They must have felt very alone in the world without each other.
2: Yeah, sure. I do get a sense that they define uh, a lot of who they are in comparison to the other.
0: Yes, exactly. And the friendships, she sort of mentions quickly and then moves on. But I think it underpins the John Lennon of 1966 is his community. Hmm. And I think that it was important to John. And it maybe was underestimated how important to John's sanity was having his community, his role in the gang, Mm -hmm. Um, and when he didn't have that, it probably made him feel much more insecure. You know, like that—that foreshadowing of John alone in his car—it cuts a very Um, lonely figure, and you want his little beetle buddies to be around him.
2: And I mean, maybe another two uh, factors—the death of Brian. Yep. The introduction of Alan Klein, the rejection of Alan Klein by Paul. And so John, being John, would get more defensive. Right. Spiky, insistent.
4: Yeah, 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 way.
2: yeah. Um, and then throwing heroin into the mix, well, you know, you've got you've got the, the ingredients for a big personality change. <laughs> well,
0: also, also, if feeling like if he's losing power, that's a problem too for John. Absolutely, you know, not. I think he feels like he's losing power in the relationship with Paul, feeling unappreciated, or maybe he ha- doesn't have Paul's eyes on him as much as he used to. You know, this is the period when John talks about he's going through murder, and Paul was full of confidence. And as we said, they measure their lives around the other and what the other is doing. John didn't say I was going through murder and George was fine and Ringo was with his wife. He mentions Paul. That's who he measures his life against. It's a really, really fascinating time to be looking at John.
4: Yeah,
2: it really is. I find it challenging to be able to wrap it all up neatly into a couple of sentences. And yeah, I find John more hieroglyphic and challenging um, i think you're probably better at um at intuiting elements of him than i am
0: well i've spent a lot more time doing that first of all but so it's, not, I it's don't. not necessarily
2: intuition it's actually you know knowledge <laughs> and analysis as well yeah, yeah. yes can,
0: it could be that um but but also i, I don't necessarily think that's true so to bring
2: it back to the question you asked, what are you left with at the end of this article? Yeah. I mean, if I, I scrolled back in our notes to the end of the Ringo one, it ends yeah. with this very reassuring statement yeah. about how secure you feel in Ringo's company. Yeah. You, then you read the end of the John article, and I, I don't get nearly the same sense of reassuring statement. I just get the sense of um, a lack of certainty.
0: Yeah. From this interview, I get the sense that John is a force of nature. And yet, I also get the sense that John is vulnerable because he is so needy. He needs attention. He's so fascinating and so vulnerable at the same time. That's what I end up with.
2: Yeah, you know, interesting. I do get the sense of that too.
0: I like just having this snapshot. This is him being happy with being rich and loaded and it also shows that john lennon was not this saint john john was human and he was interesting and he evolved and he wasn't perfect yeah
2: i was listening to somebody talking about the process whereby heroes become deified they talked about how there's this kind of cleansing quality to anyone who's elevated to hero status. the god that happened to john too didn't it But
0: it, it really makes them less did.
2: Interesting as a result.
0: It did remove the the John Lennon that is fascinated and childlike and wants a mirror on the bottom of his pool, and, mm. and it's just so much fun. Like John mm. Lennon that would write, "I am the walrus."
2: But also you know. the vulnerable John. That's not present when he becomes the working class hero. Yeah, it he, he might be more impressive in yes. in one sense, but it's um you can't connect to it as much. So I find it, um,
4: I find it interesting.
0: I do too. I do too. And, and this is why this, this article is interesting. I love John at this time, even though he's politically incorrect. I love the fact that he keeps growing. I love the fact that he ends up at every appointment at the wrong time in the wrong place and, uh, spends lots of money on, on things he loves. I totally agree. There
3: are places I remember
0: well duncan i guess this brings our discussion to a close thank you so much for being here
2: my pleasure i look forward to the next installment of the series who is it next
0: i think george and then brian
2: i can't wait
0: thanks duncan
2: thank you bye-bye
3: Some are living In my life I've loved them all But of all these friends and lovers There is no one Who compares with you And these memories Lose their meaning When I think of love as something new. Oh, I know I'll never lose
0: And that concludes our discussion about Maureen Cleve's profile on John Lennon. I have a few host notes as a follow-up to our discussion. First, about John's car. I did a little digging about John's roles following our conversation to figure out whether John really did have a James Bond car of the future, or whether cars at that time were more advanced than I had assumed. Turns out that Rolls-Royce was quite impressively advanced at that time, but also, John was typically bold and inventive with his modifications. Since we raised the subject, I'm going to provide a little more information on this vehicle. There was a good article about it in Rolling Stone magazine. So, a little bit of history. First, it's currently housed in a museum in Vancouver. According to this article, John supposedly ordered the Phantom 5, upgrading from his previous Rolls Royce, to supposedly outdo Brian with his new Bentley and to show the world that they had made it. Who knows whether the competition with Brian was true, but nevertheless, I do think John choosing the best car in the world shows how keenly aware of power and status John could be. When he bought this vehicle, He did not actually have a license. He said, I'd never bothered because I wasn't very interested in driving, but when the others passed their tests, I thought I'd better do it or I'd get left. As I mentioned in our discussion, the vehicle sounds enormous, which it actually was. It measured an astonishing 19 feet 10 inches long and 6 feet 7 inches wide and weighed nearly 3 metric tons. It included every factory option and extra, including things like black leather upholstery, a cocktail cabinet, a Perdio portable television. There was also a refrigeration system contained in the trunk. It also was one of the first cars in England to be outfitted with one-way passenger windows made of darkened, triplex, deep-light glass. At that time, Lennon said that there were multiple reasons for getting this. He said... People think they've got black windows to hide. It's partly that, but it's also for when you're coming home late. If it's daylight when you're coming in, it's still dark inside the car. You can just shut all the windows and you're still in the club. So um, I guess this was bought for John's partying lifestyle at the time. In December sixty five he actually overhauled the vehicle, submitting a seven page list of alterations. What resulted from this overhaul was a modified back seat that converted into a double bed, with oversized ashtrays added to the armrests. On demand music was available from state of the art Phillips floating record player. A Phillips tape player was also added in a specially built cabinet, as well as a sterno radio telephone. Um, And apparently, the telephone packs and batteries were so large in those days that they took up almost the entire boot, I guess, with the refrigeration system. The television set was upgraded to a more modern Sony TV, but apparently reception was poor and it rarely worked. So, there you go. Phones and TVs in cars were things in 1966. If you could afford a Rolls, anyway... Apparently, one of John's favorite toys was the loud hailer speaker, which he used to confuse the public. Paul commented on this in anthology, saying that they often had fun in the car. He said, and I quote, After recording sessions at two or three in the morning, we'd be careening through the villages on the way to Weybridge, shouting, way and driving much too fast. George would perhaps be in his Ferrari. He was quite a fast driver, and John and I would be following in his big Rolls Royce. John had a mic in his rolls with the loudspeaker outside, and he'd be shouting, It is foolish to resist Pull over." Paul said, It was insane. All the lights would go on in the houses as we passed. It must have freaked everybody out. Why Paul was going to Weybridge at two or three in the morning is unclear, but it is an amusing incident. He also talked about how they would troll their paranoid friends like Brian Jones with the loudspeaker. Paul also said that John virtually lived in his rolls. By 1967, of course, John had decided to do away with the black-everything design, and in a major act of subversion and artistry, he had it repainted with a psychedelic design, making it one of the world's most famous cars. So, in actuality, John's choice of vehicle highlights a lot about John's character. It reflects his need to assert status and power. It indicates his need for cocoon-like comfort and protection. His modifications reflect his willingness to demand the best and indicates how able he is to get his needs met. He isn't quite as helpless as he appears. His infamous paint job reflects his willingness to go big with an artistic statement. I don't think Lenin is unaware of appearances, although I agree that he probably was too self-involved and too arrogant to keep up appearances on a regular basis. I think the reality is he's very aware of them, and is often rebelliously willing to challenge them or subvert them. And it is this boldness of his acts, such as repainting the ultimate symbol of British elegance in a brilliant, psychedelic manner, that makes him so iconic. My second note is about Cynthia Lennon. In discussion with Duncan, I commented on the fact that Cynthia wasn't very present in the interview, perhaps because John wanted Maureen's attention all to himself. But she certainly is fully present in the next year when Hunter is the interviewer. Anyway, despite her absence in the interview, I wanted to acknowledge that she was a major presence in John's life until they separated in 1968. I believe her role and importance in John's life has been wildly underrepresented. The John that we meet here is able to be so amusingly cocky and open partly because of the structure that supported him at this time, and a big part of that was Cynthia. Although Cynthia may not have been willing to accompany John on his psychedelic adventures, she herself was artistic intelligent, and self-possessed, which I'm sure was hugely essential to the emotionally volatile John. I sometimes wonder if she deeply understood his insecurities and mental instability, something that I think Yoko intuitively understood better because I think she and John were simply more similar in that regard. But Cynthia did accept him for who he was, and Cynthia and Julian were a big part of John's life at this time in 66. In fact, a couple of years earlier, in 1964, John commented to Sixteen Magazine that he tried to take Cynthia everywhere he went. So he liked having Cynthia around. John wrote Cynthia many love letters, including on tour in 1965, when he wrote how much he missed her and Julian and looked forward to spending more time with them. Cynthia was an integral part of this groovy, warm home life that Maureen described so vividly and Cynthia's presence is even more pronounced in Hunter's account of John's home life from the following year, 1967. Hunter describes an evening with the Lennons as quite ordinary, involving meals, visitors, record-playing, TV, as well as bedtime for Julian. Although many of Hunter's observations of John's home life generally mirror Cleave, there is one noted change in 67, which is John himself. According to all those around him, he is quite different. In fact, Cynthia claimed that he was nicer, quieter, and more tolerant. And Pete Shotten concurred that at this time, John was not trying to prove anything that he no longer needed to be number one, which was why he was happy. John himself claimed to be happier in 1967. And in fact, I am blown away by how similar John is to Paul in 67. And actually, The changes in John in 1967 would be worth exploring at some point. Perhaps I will dedicate an episode to it. But anyway, to go back to John and Cynthia, Hunter observes them and concludes that they are essentially happy, or perhaps it was more, as Pete Shotten suggested, they had a peaceful coexistence. Cynthia is refreshingly open and realistic about their relationship, claiming that had it not been for the baby, they would have drifted apart because she said, John's love was for the Beatles. Without the baby, he would have gone off with the Beatles forever. However, both John and Cynthia tell Hunter that they are glad the baby did happen, keeping them together, that it was fate, and John especially believed in fate. So while the relationship at this point seems to lack some passion, there clearly was a strong bond and love between them. Cynthia was willing to let John shine and do his own thing, which actually may have ultimately been a mistake for Lennon clearly wanted a playmate, but she was with John constantly until 1968, when he was still reassuring her that he loved her, by the way. Now, I'm not trying to argue that John and Cynthia should have stayed together. I simply want to point out that John's home life was good in part because he had Cynthia. She was an impressive woman, and she reflected well on John. They had their own legitimate, fascinating love story, and I think that Cynthia's role, and Cynthia herself, should be reevaluated. John diminished their story in order to elevate his next relationship, but both can be true. John and Cynthia's relationship can be significant, and John and Yoko's relationship can be epic. Both stories can exist, but too often Cynthia's position is someone who bore John. And if that's the case, well then John took a long time. To figure that out, people around loved Cynthia. Paul adored her, and clearly John did too. But that brings me to my next point. My third note is about the importance of Paul in John's life. In many books, Paul is positioned similarly to Cynthia as someone who grounded John. But I think this is incorrect. While I think he absolutely did provide stability for John, I think Paul's real role was as John's partner, a partner in music, a partner in life, and most importantly, a partner in adventure, in a world-changing adventure. Hunter commented that working with Paul seemed to make John more alive. I think their unique chemistry created an electricity and energy that they both thrived off of. And I don't think that energy ever went away. In fact, May Pang recalled in the 70s that John would talk about it with Harry Nielsen. And she was referring to a possible Beatles reunion. But the main thing he talked about was that he did want to write with Paul again. He talked about it a lot end of quote. But in the 60s, Paul and John were still in this adventure together. In fact, a couple of months before the Cleve interview in late 65, Lennon told a reporter from Flip Magazine that there are only about 100 people in the world who understand our music, George, Ringo, and a few friends around the world. He said, when Paul and I write a song, we try to take hold of something we believe in, a truth we can never communicate a hundred percent of what we feel, but if we can convey just a fraction, we have achieved something. We try to give people a feeling they don't have to understand the music if they can just feel the emotion End of quote Note that at this point, the songs are still ours, and we write them, and they share the emotions that they are trying to convey. The way John speaks about their partnership seems to reflect an internalized shared feeling towards their songs which I don't think ever really went away. In fact, there's an adorable clip of Sean singing A Little Help from My Friends in the 70s. John doesn't tell him he wrote it. He says that he wrote it with his partner, Paul. But I digress. When this reporter from Flip Magazine asked John and Paul about the musical that they want to write, Paul comments that, I think we are resigned to the fact that this could not come about until the Beatles are disbanded. Then, and only then, will we have time to work on compositions, suggesting that Lennon and McCartney conceived of their partnership as something that would continue even after the Beatles. Both Lennon and McCartney said this on various occasions. Nevertheless, despite Paul's plans to continue writing indefinitely with Lennon, at this time, McCartney chose to do his own thing, and bought a house in London, away from the others. Pete Shotten commented on this in his book, noting that, and I quote, John had originally envisaged all four Beatles living in close proximity and was somewhat taken aback when Paul, the most independent member of the group, elected to remain in London. At that time, the bond John felt with the other Beatles was such that he, at least, would never have dreamed of living more than a few minutes away from the other three. But of course, Paul did. He was excited and distracted by the London scene, significantly taking his eyes off Lennon. Perhaps this is one of the reasons Lennon seemed somewhat alone by the end of his profile. John's partner and the closest person to him was elsewhere having a ball, which John noticed. We know this because on September twenty-third, 1969, three days after John's divorce declaration, John discussed all of this with Barry Miles making it clear that John was aware of the dynamics at play in 66. I believe that Paul's new life absolutely unnerved John. Paul took acid with Tara Brown and his gang, and he took Tara and his wife to Liverpool for the Christmas holidays. Paul was deeply involved with Miles and the International Times, and Paul went to Paris with Robert Fraser. He was also very involved with Fraser, who has been characterized as the nerve center of the Swinging Sixties scene. I think Paul's distraction was keenly felt by John, and as I mentioned, I believe John was explicitly calling this out in the song, And Your Bird Can Sing. I think John needed Paul's attention and was very adept at getting Paul's attention, as we will see a couple of years later. I often wonder if Klaus Foreman noticed this dynamic between Lennon and McCartney, because on the cover of the Revolver album, which he designed, He has Lennon slyly looking to the right in the direction of McCartney, while McCartney looks off into the distance, turned away from Lennon, only his profile visible to us. But then came the 66 tour, and that changed everything. Paul was fiercely loyal and really showed up for John, and after that they seemed to be very close again. McCartney even joined Lennon in Paris to celebrate his birthday in what was an echo trip of their original Paris trip five years earlier. And then, of course, Lennon spent a significant amount of time at Cavendish in 67. Barry Miles told me that he often saw John at Paul's place, and that he and his wife went out for dinner with John and Paul multiple occasions in 67. I suspect John being in London was perhaps about being closer to the scene, but more importantly, I think it was about being close to Paul. And perhaps, as Duncan and I discussed, Greece was an attempt to bring Paul back into the fold of the Beatles community. Paul was the only one who was not in Weybridge, and John's conception of Greece shows that he didn't really care about being in the center of the London scene. I think for Lennon and McCartney, if the other isn't there, their community is not complete. They both essentially prove this in the breakup. John worked with George and Ringo, but it was never the Beatles. And Paul said that if someone else had quit the Beatles, they might have continued, but not without John. I think both John and Paul loved the community of the Beatles, but their relationship to each other was primary. Still. While I think McCartney was uniquely important to Lennon, my fourth point is actually about the importance of the Beatles community to John. Even in this flip interview, John says that he and Paul write the music that only a handful of people like George and Ringo can understand. And he concludes that only really Beatles can play Beatles music, which reflects the importance of all the Beatles to John. These Cleave profiles provide a snapshot of just how close the Beatles are in 1966. And this is supported by Hunter's account a year later. John recalled to Hunter that I did try and go on my way after we stopped touring. I had a few good laughs and games of Monopoly on my film, but it didn't work. I didn't meet anyone else I liked. I was never so glad to see the others. Seeing them made me feel normal again. And Hunter himself observed that the only live stimulus John gets is from the other Beatles. No one has been within light years of taking their place in his life. He quotes John as saying that he wants to be left alone because he's not a mixer, that, and I quote, I've got enough friends to see me through. I just want to be left alone. My so-called outgoing character is all false. I kept it up for years, but I'm not a loudmouth. It was a part I put on as a defense. Hunter also comments about how the Beatles generally repel all others because, and I quote, they are busy going their own way, doing their own thing together. John then clarified, most people don't get across to us. We never really communicated with other people. Now that we don't meet strangers at all, there is no need for any communication. We understand each other. It doesn't matter about the rest. Hunter notices that John, most of all, can't be without the other three for very long, which she says is hard luck on sin. And he reports a conversation where Cynthia says she longs to go on holiday without John's buddies, but John counters that it's nice to have your mates around, to which Cynthia observes, they seem to need you less than you need them. Pete Charlton also noted the closeness of the Beatles, stating in his book that there never was, and probably never will be, a group more self-contained or tightly knit than the Beatles were in those days. The way their talents and personalities harmonized was little short of miraculous. Until about 1968, I never witnessed or even heard about a single serious disagreement between any of them. All those who were close to the Beatles noted the particular closeness of Lennon McCartney, such as Alistair Taylor, who commented, forget what happened later. At that time, they were closer than any two men I've ever known. Cleaver self-commented on how funny Lennon and McCartney were together. I mention all of this in an effort to reframe the story a little, or to counteract the post-breakup narrative, which was formed mostly by Lennon in the early breakup years when he was highly emotional and upset, saying things that he later refuted. The story he told then was that he lost interest in the Beatles the moment Yoko came on the scene. But of course, when you dig, this is patently false. Yet... It is still read into so much of the Beatles' story. That's why these Cleve and Davies' contemporaneous accounts are important. Both note the particular closeness of the Beatles. But it didn't end then. People like Harry Nielsen, who was close to John in the 70s, clarified that while he adored John, it was the Beatles that John still felt close to. He said, I'd like to say I was a very close friend. I wasn't a very close friend. No one was a very close friend to John other than the Beatles. He also told an author this anecdote. He said, someone told me they saw John Lennon walking down the street, wearing a button saying, I love Paul. And this girl who told me that said, she asked him, why are you wearing the button that says, I love Paul? He said, because I love Paul. May Pang recalled how John fretted and worried about his relationships with the other Beatles in the early seventies, when he was in the height of his arguments with them. So you see, he never lost interest. So what if we let go of that idea and acknowledge that John really, really loved the Beatles and always did? And that becomes our baseline. And we stopped with this story that John lost interest or, you know, they grew apart. We all know that Paul went through a tough time when the Beatles broke up, but John did too. By early 1970, when the Beatles are collapsing, John is checking himself into full-time therapy with Janov because he was in pain and needed support. This pain has always been attributed to his childhood issues, and I'm sure that's the original cause. But looking at how close the Beatles were and how vital they were to John's happiness and sanity leads me to suspect that his pain might have become so present in 1970 because he was triggered by the breakup of his true family, the Beatles, which might have seemed like a repeat of his early years. By late 1970, John is attempting to separate emotionally from the Beatles, claiming that the dream is over. But by 71, he's again claiming that Paul is the closest person to him other than Yoko. And by 72, he's stating that nothing will ever break the love we have for each other. I still believe all you need is love. I'm hoping that accounts like Cleve's, can lead to a more nuanced take of the situation. That he was both inspired by Yoko, but also deeply attached and bonded to the Beatles, essentially for the rest of his life. I'm making a case for the importance of Cynthia, the Beatles, and Paul in John's life, because I think to some extent that the breakup story diminished all of this. But of course, Yoko was also hugely important to John. And that requires its own episode at some point. Duncan and I discussed the word real, how it seemed to have significant meaning for John. And I think the song Real Love sounds like a defense of the love they shared, a defiant statement that what they had was real. In fact, various iterations of this song seem to address Paul. In this song, John seems a little defiant to me, though I'm not sure who he is defying, society, his younger self, Paul. But it seems that John is clear that what they had was real. And it's wonderful that the Beatles were all able to participate and contribute to this record. Of course, I'm not trying to sell anyone on this interpretation. This is my conclusion based on my research. Maybe it was about Yoko, or maybe it was about nothing at all and only written for a musical. But I suspect Yoko gave it to the Beatles for a reason. And if so, that was lovely and generous of her. I think the song Real Love deserves more discussion. So a deeper dive into the song will be forthcoming.
3: She's been married seven times before,
0: next- My final note is about Cleve's comparison of John to Henry VIII. Duncan and I discussed this in depth, but I'd like to touch upon it again because it's so important to the Beatles story and it's kind of hard to reconcile. I had to think about it a lot because John is uniquely regal and commanding. And I think this aspect of John is one that the Beatles loved because I think this imperiousness, this arrogance and his boldness probably was part of what made the Beatles feel so confident in the world. In fact, I think John's imperiousness and disregard for authority was wildly exciting to McCartney. Perhaps it made the world seem bigger, more exciting to McCartney. Paul has said that when he met John, his life went in a different direction, perhaps indicating that John helped him break free of the expectations that he had placed on him and gave him the confidence to pursue his dream of music. So John's attitude and presence is important. But as we mentioned, this is only half of John. The other half of John is insecure and gentle. Paul has said repeatedly that John in real life was a very soft, very lovely guy. And that John was not as tough as he seemed. So I think one of the problems is that John's regal outward comportment and behavior is conflated with the actual power dynamics of the band. And this is a mistake because the guy they saw was mostly easygoing and funny and relaxed. Paul is often positioned as John's right-hand man or deputy, which I dislike intensely because we are talking about a songwriting partnership in a creative endeavor. Paul was not executing John's bold vision for the Beatles. They were collaborating on creating music. And I think Paul brought an equal amount to the table. While John's presence and leadership skills were incredibly important in terms of rallying the group and making them feel strong, so was Paul's energy, the engine that he provided for the Beatles. And John acknowledged this. Like Paul, he commented on the first day they met. While Paul said that John helped him go in a new direction, John said that the day he met Paul was when things started moving, reflecting Paul's ability to drive action. So John is regal but he's not the king of the Beatles. I believe if anyone had asked John at any time in his life, if he believed he was smarter, more talented, more creative, or more powerful than Paul, he would have said no. Though I think he would have said that he was madder and crazier, and he probably would have had a point. Though I suspect McCartney is way, way crazier than he lets on, so I'm not sure even that is true. But I think that John and Paul saw each other as equals. In fact, Paul has said, I think we always felt like we were kind of equal in talent. So although John carried himself like a king, I think it was a dance they did where Paul made sure John felt like a king and Paul was secure enough to do this for him, partly because he knew John needed it. But also I think he liked it when John was strong. Powerful John gave Paul confidence and Paul's energy kept John strong. So it worked for a long time until they got their wires crossed. But anyways, we've already talked about that one. That's it for now. Thank you all for listening. A big shout out to Duncan Driver for being such a fabulous partner in crime in this series. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give it a shout out in social or give it a rating or review to help promote it so that other people can find it. Also, if you have comments about the episode or questions you would like to have answered on this podcast or ideas or requests for future episodes, please let me know. You can tweet, post, or email me with your comments. And finally, I want to thank all my patrons for their support. Although I have some of the best collaborators in the world, such as the brilliant Duncan Driver, This is a one-woman podcast owned, run, edited, and produced by me, so the support is hugely appreciated. That's all for now. We will be back very soon with our discussion of the George profile, which is gold. It's equally revealing and insightful. So, until next time, I will now leave you with Duncan Driver reading the full profile on John Lennon.
2: How Does a Beetle Live? John Lennon Lives Like This by Maureen Cleave It was this time three years ago that the beetles first grew famous. Ever since then, observers have anxiously tried to gauge whether their fame was on the wax or on the wane. They foretold the fall of the old beetles. They searched diligently for the new beetles, which was as pointless as looking for the new Big Ben. At last, they have given up. The Beatles' fame is beyond question. It has nothing to do with whether they are rude or polite, married or unmarried, 25 or 45, whether they appear on top of the Pops or do not appear on top of the Pops. They are well above any position even a rolling stone might jostle for. They are famous in the way that the Queen is famous. When John Lennon's Rolls Royce with its black wheels and its black windows goes past, people say, it's the Queen or it's the Beatles. With her they share the security of a stable life at the top. They all tick over in the public esteem. She in Buckingham Palace, they in the Weybridge-Esha area. Only Paul remains in London. The Weybridge community consists of the three married Beatles. They live there among the wooded hills and the stockbrokers. They have not worked since Christmas, and their existence is secluded and curiously timeless. What day is it? John Lennon asks, with interest when you ring up with news from outside. The fans are still at the gates, but the Beatles see only each other. They are better friends than ever before. Ringo and his wife Maureen may drop in on John and Sin. John may drop in on Ringo. George and Patty may drop in on John and Sin, and they might all go round to Ringo's, by car, of course. Outdoors is for holidays. They watch films, they play rowdy games of buccaneer, they watch television till it goes off, often playing records at the same time. They while away the small hours of the morning making mad tapes. Bedtimes and meal times have no meaning as such. We've never had time before to do anything but just be Beatles, John Lennon said. He is much the same as he was before, he still peers down his nose, arrogant as an eagle, although contact lenses have righted the short sight that originally caused the expression. He looks more like Henry VIII ever now than his face is filled out, he is just as imperious, just as unpredictable, indolent, disorganized, childish, vague, charming, and quick-witted. He is still easygoing, still tough as hell. You never asked after Fred Lennon, he said, disappointed. Fred is his father. He emerged after they got famous. He was here a few weeks ago. It was only the second time in my life I'd seen him. I showed him the door. He went on cheerfully. I wasn't having him in the house. His enthusiasm is undiminished, and he insists on it being shared. George has put him on this Indian music. You're not listening, are you? He shouts after 20 minutes of the record. It's amazing, this, so cool. Don't Indians appear cool to you? Are you listening? The music is thousands of years old. It makes me laugh. The British going over there and telling them what to do? Quite amazing. And he switched on the television set. Experience has sown few seeds of doubt in him. Not that his mind is closed, but it's closed round whatever he believes at the time. Mm -hmm. Christianity will go, he said. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Jesus was all right, but all his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. He is reading extensively about religion. He shops in lightning swoops on Asprey's these days, and there is some fine wine in his cellar but he is still quite unselfconscious. He is far too lazy to keep up appearances, even if he had worked out what the appearances should be, which he has not. He is now twenty-five. He lives in a large, heavily panelled, heavily carpeted, mock Tudor house, set on a hill with his wife, Cynthia, and his son, Julian. There is a cat called after his aunt, Mimi, in a purple dining-room. Julian is three. He may be sent to the lycée in London. Seems like the only place for him in his position, says his father, surveying him dispassionately. I feel sorry for him, though. I couldn't stand ugly people, even when I was five. Lots of the ugly ones are foreign, aren't they? We did a speedy tour of the house, Julian panting along behind, clutching a large porcelain Siamese cat. John swept past the objects in which he had lost interest. That's Sydney, a suit of armor. That's a hobby I had for a week, a room full of model racing cars. Sin won't let me get rid of that. A fruit machine. In the sitting room are eight little green boxes with winking red lights. He bought them as Christmas presents, but never got round to giving them away. They wink for a year. One imagines him sitting there till next Christmas, surrounded by these little winking boxes. He paused over objects he still fancies. A huge altar crucifix of a Roman Catholic nature with IHS on it. A pair of crutches, a present from George an enormous Bible he bought in Chester, his gorilla suit. I thought I might need a gorilla suit, he said. He seemed sad about it. I've only worn it twice. I thought I might pop in in the summer and drive around in the Ferrari. We were all going to get them and drive around in them, but I was the only one who did. I've been thinking about it, and if I didn't wear the head, it would make an amazing fur coat with legs, you see. (laughs) I would like a fur coat, but I've never run into any. One feels that his possessions, to which he adds daily, have got the upper hand. All the tape recorders, the five television sets, the cars, the telephones, of which he knows not a single number. The moment he approaches a switch, it fuses. Six of the winking boxes, guaranteed to last till next Christmas, have gone funny already. His cars, the Rolls, the Mini Cooper, black wheels, black windows, the Ferrari being painted black, puzzle him. There's the, then there's the swimming pool, the trees sloping away beneath it. Nothing like what I ordered, he says resignedly. He wanted the bottom to be a mirror. It's an amazing household, he said. None of my gadgets really work, except the gorilla suit. That's the only suit that fits me. He is very keen on books, will always ask what is good to read. He buys quantities of books, and these are kept tidily in a special room. He has Swift, Tennyson, Huxley, Orwell, costly leather-bound editions of Tolstoy, Oscar Wilde. Then there's Little Women and all the William books from his childhood and some unexpected volumes such as 41 Years in India by Field Marshal Lord Roberts and Curiosities of Natural History by Francis T. Buckland. This last with its chapter headings, Earless Cats, Wooden-legged People, the immortal Harvey's mother is right up his street. He approaches reading with a lively interest, untempered by too much formal education. I've read millions of books, he said. That's why I seem to know things. He is obsessed by Celts. I've decided I am a Celt, he said. I'm on Bodicea's side. All those bloody blue eyed blondes chopping people up. I have an awful feeling wishing I was there. Not that, not there with scabs and sores, but there through reading about it. The books don't give you much more than a paragraph about how they lived, I have to imagine that. He can sleep almost indefinitely. Is probably the laziest person in England. Physically lazy, he said. I don't mind writing or reading or watching or speaking, but sex is the only physical thing I can be bothered with anymore. Occasionally he is driven to London in the Rolls by an ex-Welsh guardsman called Anthony. Anthony has a moustache that intrigues him. The day I visit him, he has been invited to lunch in London, about which he was rather excited. "'Do you know how long lunch lasts?' he asked. "'I've never been to lunch before. I went to a Lion's the other day and had egg and chips and a cup of tea. The waiters kept looking and saying, "'No, it isn't him. It can't be.' He settled himself into the car and demonstrated the television, the folding bed, the refrigerator, the writing desk, the telephone. He has spent many fruitless hours on that telephone. I only once got through to a person, he said, and they were out. Anthony had spent the weekend in Wales. John asked if they'd kept a welcome for him on the hillside, and Anthony said they had. They discussed the possibility of an extension for the telephone. We had to call at the doctors because John had a bit of a sea urchin in his toe. Don't want to be like Dorothy Dandridge, he said, dying of a splinter 50 years later. He added reassuringly that he had washed the foot in question. (laughs) We bowled along in a costly fashion through the countryside. Famous and loaded is how he describes himself now. They keep telling me I'm all right for money, but then I think I might have spent it all by the time I'm 40, so I keep going. That's why I started selling my cars. Then I changed my mind They got them all back, and a new one too. I want the money just to be rich. The only other way of getting it is to be born rich. If you have money, that's power without having to be powerful. I often think that it's all a big conspiracy, that the winners of the government and the people like us have got the money. That joke about keeping the workers ignorant is still true. That's what they said about the Tories and the landowners and that. Then labor were meant to educate the workers, but they don't seem to be doing that anymore. He has a morbid horror of stupid people. Famous and loaded as I am, I still have to meet soft people. It often comes into my mind that I'm not really rich. There are really rich people, but I don't know where they are. He finds being famous quite easy, confirming one's suspicion that the Beatles had been leading up to this all their lives. Everybody thinks they would have been famous, if only they'd had the Latin and that. So when it happens, it comes naturally. You remember your old granny saying soft things like, you'll make it with that voice. Not, he added, that he had any old grannies. He got to the doctor two and three quarter hours early and to lunch on time, but in the wrong place. He bought a giant compendium of games from Asprey's, but having opened it, he could not, of course, shut it again. He wondered what else he should buy. He went to Brian Epstein's office. Any presents? He asked eagerly. He observed that there was nothing like getting things for free. He tried on the attractive Miss Hanson's spectacles. The rumour came through that the Beatles had been sighted walking down Oxford Street. He brightened. One of the others must be out, he said, as though speaking of an escaped bear. "'We only let them out one at a time,' said the attractive Miss Hanson firmly. "'He said that to live and have a laugh were the things to do, "'but was that enough for the restless spirit? "'Weybridge,' he said, "'won't do it all. "'I'm just stopping at it, like a bus stop. "'Bankers and stockbrokers live there. "'They can add figures, and Weybridge is what they live in, "'and they think it's the end. "'They really do. "'I think of it every day, me and my Hansel and Gretel house.' I'll take my time, I'll get my real house when I know what I want. You see, there's something else I'm going to do, something I must do, only I don't know what it is. That's why I go around painting and taping and drawing and writing and that, because it may be one of them. All I know is this isn't for me. Anthony got him in the compendium into the car and drove him home with the television flickering in the soothing darkness While the Londoners outside rushed home from work the end
3: Yay. Waking, little like shape, me. Feel me where I am. I won't be sleeping. Everybody seems to think I'm lazy. I don't mind.